Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. I'm Dr. Chris Tucker from the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and founder of the podcast. I'd like to introduce Dr. Bert Mandelbaum from Santa Monica, California. Dr. Mandelbaum serves as the co-director of clinical affairs at the Curlin Job Institute at Cedar sinai Hospital. He is also the team physician for USA Men's National Soccer Team and the LA Galaxy. Dr. Mandelbaum was the senior author on an infographic titled, How to Manage Cartilage Injuries, which was published in the October 2019 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal. His co-authors include Jorge Chala and Jonathan Stone. Welcome, Bert, and thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Chris, speaking about cartilage. Bert, you're a recognized expert in the field of sports medicine and particularly surgical management of sports-related injuries. First, congratulations to you and your co-authors for the production of this visually appealing and succinct summary of cartilage injury management. One of my motivations in inviting you to discuss this with me is so I can ask you all the challenging questions we encounter in the clinical setting when it comes to managing patients with cartilage injuries, not necessarily the more straightforward cases, but more of the fringe cases where we may not have as much evidence yet to guide us. However, first, can you briefly describe for us your overall approach to patients with cartilage injuries and some guiding principles you abide by in your practice? I'd be happy to, Chris. You know, the first approach, and and you basically stated as a sports doctor. And the first issue is that we are responsible for prevention, performance, and care of the athletes. And that's a key important issue to understand those three different purposes that we have. And how we address those purposes with respect to the concept, the techniques, and the technologies we use are critical to the understanding as as we go forward in everyday practice managing our athletes. So that's the overarching key thing that we really approach our athletes and all patients who have a variety of cartilage defects. Performance, prevention, and how do we manage it, whether it be operatively or non-operatively. Those are the key principles we have overall. So let's get into some more of the finer details For the purposes of decision-making analysis in the preoperative planning phase, how are you defining the difference between a purely chondral lesion and an osteochondral lesion with respect to the subchondral bone? It's really important to understand. When we first started thinking about this in 1995 to 2000, everybody was focused on cartilage defects as just being cartilage. But what's most interesting for me in the last 25 years of approaching these same defects, our concepts have kind of flipped on themselves because we now better understand that many of these cartilage defects that were truly cartilage are actually caused by changes in the subcondyl bone and the cancellous bone more proximal to the joint. So for us, that's been a critical change in understanding cartilage defects osteochondral defects, how the joint works and interacts with respect to the synovium, it's critical to understand, and most important principle, is that the joint is an organ. And overall, we must understand all aspects here 
not only the local aspects to the cartilage, subconal bone, the vascular circulation, but the various details that include the alignment, meniscus and ligament deficiency, but also importantly understand the organ as we talk about in relationship to tissue, cell matrix, and to the molecular level on all sides going forward. So the question was, how do we differentiate chondral from osteochondral defects? But the reality is the joint is an organ. And for us to effectively manage in these holes in the joint, whether it includes bone and cartilage, and even further proximally, we've got to understand these critical details to effectively treat our patients. So when we look at your infographic, we have some general recommendations based on defect size and location and depth. Depth implying involvement of the underlying subchondral bone or not. In your evaluation, does size or intensity of the adjacent bone marrow edema signify an osteochondral lesion? Or in your opinion, do we need to see more advanced damage, such as subchondral cyst formation? Or if just edema, how much edema is significant? And does the time interval between the patient's symptoms and when they get the MRI matter? Well, all the above are critical to interpret the situation. In this situation, we have to consider so many patient variables, including the age of the individual, the time differential between the onset of this problem and the time we're treating the patient. But we also have to look at traumatic or over time issues and put all this together as an algorithm. And our thinking over the last 20 years has changed. In the beginning, we were talking about just the surface, this two centimeter lesion and filling a hole. And now we have to understand this wide spectrum of issues getting back into the bone because it really is the bone and the bone marrow that is causing these type of cartilage defects, remembering that in fact that the subconal bone is highly vulnerable and the deepest hyaline layer is provided 50% of the glucose oxygen water comes from the subconal bone. So we can't interpret one without understanding the other. Yes, we need cartilage integrity, but yes, we need to have our subconal bone uh, to remain in an integral way that's highly successful, that we're not, blood flow is not being uh, stalemated, that we're not seeing clots, that we're not seeing edema that leads to further injury to the cartilage by virtue of it giving its glucose, oxygen, and water coming from the subchondral bone. So sticking to the topic of subchondral bone, let's specifically speak to the small, less than two square centimeter chondral lesions for a moment. According to your algorithm in the infographic, this lesion recommends treatment with marrow stimulation plus biologics. I think we all are reading the papers in the trend now, which labels microfracture our current generation's tool of the devil. So I assume you've adopted a newer technique for stimulation, such as drilling. I just wanted to hear your specific technique for this, and also what biologics are we talking about? Well, the first issue is, is this a, a chondral defect that has a normal subchondral bone? And or is there significant edema, and this is a, a truly an osteochondral abnormality? Because we have to define for ourselves 
truly what is happening in the subcondyl area. When we look at this, and this has been well studied, Uchiu has researched this and published this in CORE in 2001, where they studied these, looking at interosseous pressure elevation and marked capacitance disturbances, as well as clearance times that were much slower. So we understand the flow of this organ, of the flow through the bone is disrupted if we're just making a microfracture on the very surface, absolutely don't change the course of that pathogenesis. So we have to understand what really the context is in relationship to the surface defect. So we've got to go beyond that. And as you mentioned, we can do a decompression, a core decompression. We can introduce our platelet-rich plasma, a bone marrow aspirate, all of which can have significant effect. But it's important to understand specifically what is happening in that lesion, in that knee at that time. So for some of our listeners who are early on in their training, uh, can you just speak to the specifics of size of the drill you're using, the depth you're drilling to, the pattern of drilling that you use for these particular lesions? Well, the first thing we, we refer back to the MRI. And let us say, and I measure the size in, in multi-planar reconstruction MRIs to get up, give me a sense that I truly understand how that bone marrow edema, that bone marrow lesion, and there are lots of different terminologies that we could use to describe it. But for me, the most important thing is that we know that the, there are these physiological changes, but we also know there's some cellular deficiencies. Hernigu in JBGS early 2002 has also found that the that if you look at these bone marrow edema areas, that there's deficiencies in cells. These bone marrow progenitor cells have activities that are decreased. There's lower numbers of these overall, and are also down-regulated, especially those cells that have osteogenic potential. So it's important to be able to understand where this area is. And what I do is I characterize that area and I'll go through with a little drawing of this is two by three centimeters, one centimeter proximal to the joint line at the midline. And then when I get into the operating room, I triangulate by putting a needle into the joint and then specifically will drill exactly the grid that I need to be in. In fact, that will be with a two millimeter drill. I use the depth is really dependent on where we need to be. And then I introduce with a spinal needle, the biologics, specifically PRP or bone marrow aspirate. And that really depends on the situation. The more significant of a situation, I'll use bone marrow aspirate concentration by virtue of its osteogenic potential. It's high uh, amount of, of VEGF for angiogenesis. Uh, but also uh, platelets and other progenitor cells. So that's, that would be my algorithm for dealing with these specific bone marrow lesions in combination with cartilage defects at different times. Now, the big and deep defect, we'll also have to resurface that. In that case, uh, we'll go to osteochondral allograft. For the smaller ones on the cartilage side, we can get away with some of the drilling techniques in combination with the decompression and biologic. Let's discuss incidental chondral lesions 
when performing arthroscopy for another purpose, like an ACL reconstruction. Can you walk me through your intraoperative decision-making with respect to debridement alone, chondroplasty, or repair, such as a marrow stimulation, or even an autographed oats? In your hands, who gets what and when? Well, the answer to your question really starts with patient care and in your, your informed consent. Because critical to that really dictates what you can do and should do in the operating room. So the most important thing is mm-hmm. what you're doing and in informing the patient in terms of what the spectrum, the scalable spectrum of what you can do, whether it be debridement, drilling, microfracture, mm-hmm. osteoconal autograph uh, at that time. Because you're going to be limited unless you provide the patient with a very broad-based approach depending on your clinical interpretation. So that's step one. Now, we've done a very good job in informing our patient. We've, we've told them the spectrum of all the things that you discussed in terms of microfracture, osteoconal autograph. For me, it really depends on the size of the lesion and the context of that. For lesions that are relatively small and well-shouldered, Many of the times you can get away with just a breed mod. If you debreed the calcified cartilage, there's some type of healing that goes on in well-shouldered, small lesions, probably less than eight millimeters in size. On the bigger lesions, you're going to be faced dependent with your informed consent on what you're comfortable doing. And again, the algorithm can include just drilling or microfracture. That certainly could be one option in the situation, especially in the face of ACL reconstruction, where you'll have a lot of marrow products floating around the joint, and it becomes what I call a microfracture plus procedure. If it's a little on the bigger side in this situation, you may want to consider a OATS procedure with autograph, depending on that situation, because you are doing a notchplasty, and you'll be in almost the same position. The other thing that we have used in recent years, and again, it's been there's been a number of articles looking at particulate autograph cartilage implantation of taking a cartilage from your notchplasty, grinding it, and there are several types of devices that, that remain. One of this is the graft net by Arthrex, where you could grind the cartilage, mix that with PRP, and fill the defect. And we've been using this and showing quite a good cartilage response on post-operative MRI. So you have a wide variety, but the key is getting informed consent. The key is the size and the depth of the lesion and how it fits into the context of, of your clinical algorithm. Let's talk about the comorbidities briefly. Correcting malalignment is obviously crucial to improving the success of any cartilage surgery. What are your cutoffs for indicating somebody for a realignment procedure either an HTO or a distal femoral osteotomy with respect to their severity of malalignment? Are you factoring in their contralateral alignment? And when you do decide to perform this, what's your targeted correction? Well, I think this is a, a little bit of thinking. And the most important thing that I recommend to everybody managing cartilage patients is routinely get mechanical access views on everybody. Routinely get Rosenberg PA views on everybody. And the main reason is you get used to understanding what the spectrum of scalability is. And you ask the question, 
because everything's relative to their bilaterality. It's important to understand what the mechanical axis is at minute one. We have some athletes that have six to nine degrees of varus on both their knees. And the context of management and changing alignment would be dictated by their natural alignment in and of themselves. Certainly for those individuals that are above five degrees, it's probably a consideration in a large and deep cartilage or an osteochondral defect, but not routinely, especially in the face of osteochondritis dissecans. Obviously, it's about five degrees. If they go much above five degrees of varus in that situation on the medial side, we will consider alignment procedure. And I think on the, on the lateral side, the same is true. But it's important to be careful in terms of correction, especially on the lateral side, if it's five degrees or six degrees, be careful not to correct the patient into varus. Especially the women are very unhappy with that. And I've seen a number of patients that have been corrected from five or six degrees of valgus uh, back to neutral or even one degree of varus. And then you get this windswept change because she's valgus on one side and the other side she's varus by zero, one, two degrees and they're not very happy in these situations. So I think the jury is still out on these things. I think there's some general principles. We know what the extremes are like, that they do worse in that situation. It's the gray zones that are more challenging for all of us. Agreed. All right, Bert, what are you doing either pre- or post-operatively for your cartilage patients that we may not be reading about in the literature? Anything like post-operative intra-articular injections, any nutritional supplements, NSAID restrictions, anything else like that? You know, one of the things that I have done over the years is I've been very interested in the spectrum of orthobiologics. And how I first became interested in this uh, was I would see a variety of patients who had a cartilage procedure, and I'd see other people's patients, and they weren't doing well. And the, this is now going back uh, to about year 2000. And I started using high hyaluronic acid in these patients. And we here in our, our center, we use patient-reported outcomes. And all of a sudden, I would see the numbers rising. And significantly, just by using high hyaluronic acid in those post-operative cartilage patients that were struggling with low numbers. So I said, that's pretty remarkable that we could take someone who's had a microfracture or at that time an ACI procedure or any type of OATS procedure, and all of a sudden they're seeing changes. And then we got into the PRP era, and I started using PRP, and then I started using combinations of PRP and high hyaluronic acid. And the interesting thing about that is that PRP and high hyaluronic acid are very synergistic. What HA does is cause the platelets to more effectively release their capsules and they get more growth factors as a consequence, hence the synergies here. So what I've learned over the years in cartilage repair procedures, I use post-operative biologics, HA, PRP, or combinations. And what I do is I drive my scores up and I've documented that and I find that it's very effective at that. And that's one of the things, those concepts, we talked about techniques, technology, and concepts. That's one of the concepts that I've learned and having the availability of interventions like PRP, and that's a low white cell PRP for this indication, 
plus high allyuronic acid can be very effective in these situations. What have you found in your practice is the optimal time frame or schedule for that type of an injection? I do that at the sixth and seventh week. And I don't have any real reason why, except for the fact that I want them to get off of crutches and they're about that time coming off the crutches. And I think it's a good time signaling period to stimulate another cycle of anabolism. So that's what I've been doing at week six and week seven. I've been coming and utilizing chondral facilitation techniques such as PRP with or without hyaluronic acid. Very interesting. I like hearing the concept backed up with some evidence-based PROs that you're collecting. Can you close with sharing maybe your one or two takeaway pearls with respect to managing cartilage injuries that our listeners can apply in their own practice? Yes, I think overall, it's an imperative when you're managing cartilage patients to have a broad-based view of managing the complexity. If you think about what your purpose is in terms of preventing further problems, having your patient or your athlete performing optimally and managing the care of them, you have to understand what are these new concepts? Where do they come from? What are they based upon? as you mentioned, Chris, evidence-based. How they match those concepts to the technique and the technology is critical. And why is it critical? Because in 20 years of doing this, they keep evolving. Every step seems to be evolving and evolving in a way where we're learning new concepts that are helping us. Just as I was speaking about subconal bone, that what we never really thought of a bone-out lesion, that it's actually the bone that causes the cartilage defect. So if you ignore the bone, then you're going to live with the concept that your your cartilage is not going to heal itself well, and you're not going to get a good outcome. So concepts, techniques, and technologies, and, and supporting that, as you said, Chris, with understanding evidence-based and outcome data will help you optimally manage your patients going forward. Well, I have to say thank you for your leadership and guidance in the field of cartilage surgery, and particularly thank you for taking some of your time to share your thoughts with us tonight. My pleasure, Chris. Dr. Mandelbaum's infographic titled How to Manage Cartilage Injuries can be found in the October 2019 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal, which is available online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. This concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. Thank you for listening.